Today's guest is one of the best communicating CEOs I've seen for some time. He's accessible whilst clear about his boundaries. He lives his values. His pride for his county shines through. He recognises the role he plays as a champion and challenger for his sector. And he does it with humility and good humour. I could have chatted to him all day. I'm Lee Griffith, a communications strategist, executive coach and all-round champion of leaders who shun the old school stereotypes. I'm here to help you get clear on your strategy, implement some self-leadership and connect with those you serve through your communications so that you can deliver improved organisational performance, engagement and reputation. Sign up to my newsletters to receive even more useful insights into how to be an impactful leader. You can also find out how I can support your organisation to better connect with the people it serves. Visit sundayskies.com to find out more. Today's guest is Nick Aitken, CEO of Yorkshire Housing. Nick is a disruptor in his industry and regularly cited as a top influencer for the housing sector. We talk about building the right culture, tackling transformation, how to influence and take people with you, earning trust, the importance of communications and what it feels like to be in the 5am club. Enjoy. So I'm delighted to welcome Nick Atkin to the Leaders of Impact podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. I am going to head straight into the first question. and It's one I ask everyone, and that is, what does impactful leadership mean to you? Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think most of us who are in leadership roles have got here by luck rather than any particular judgment. So I suppose in some ways, for me, being impactful means that people buy into what you're trying to do. I think too many organizations probably focus on processes and policies and strategies. And for me, at the end of the day, you can have all of that. But if your people aren't bought into to the journey and if the people don't believe in you as a leader, if you're not authentic, if you're not genuine, then I think particularly in the last five years, I've seen that really shift. And if you haven't got that, then you just can't have impact. I think for me, it's the, the whole cultural piece. I know sort of that there's a saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast, but I think it's absolutely the one thing that I've taken from my career is the absolute importance of culture. And that's why as chief exec, I'm the, as I say, I'm the custodian of the culture for how our 800 people deliver services to the people who live in our 20,000 homes. I love that. Custodian of culture. I've definitely got questions about culture lined up for us to discuss. So I won't get into that straight away, but I completely agree with the sentiment. I want to take you back a little bit and try to understand what's shaped you as the person and the leader that you are today. It is interesting. When I look back on my career, I was promoted to leadership roles because I was good at what I did operationally rather than because I was either a good leader of people or that I could think about strategy and long-term direction and all those things that were sort of shrouded in mystery. I think it's better now than it was for people coming into leadership roles and it's a lot more focused on coaching and mentoring and certainly I act as a coach and a mentor for people in their career. But I think it's about, for me, it's about getting to to understand the individuals that are around you, getting to understand what makes them tick, what motivates them, what demotivates them as well, and having more of a sort of bespoke style with the people around you. And I think that the other thing I'd say is being really clear. Less is most definitely more. I have a really low boredom threshold. 
So most of my colleagues know anything over two pages, I ain't going to read it. I'm not interested. I'm a massive fan of infographics. I think they really help land messages. Also, I think most businesses overcomplicate what they do. For example, my business model as a housing association is really simple. We build or acquire homes, uh, we let them, we repair and maintain them, and we collect the rent. It's pretty straightforward. If you spoke to some of my colleagues, they'd probably um, have a very uh, different and overly complicated view of what we do. So I think for me, it's about um, simplifying things. What would I tell my younger self? Probably to not worry about what other people think. So I got into quite senior. I was a chief executive at 36. I had no clue what I was doing. Absolutely no clue whatsoever. But I worried for probably 10 years. Around, I know, I know you're thinking, Blanny, you're only 46. Um, I know. I was, I was just picking my jaw um, up then. <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes you worry too much about what other people think about you and they prove yourself. And you have to, the sooner you can get comfortable in your own skin and recognize that you're going to make mistakes and that's fine and you, you can learn from them. So I think it's easier, slightly easier now for people coming into leadership roles perhaps than, than it may have been in the past. But for me, learning from other people who you admire I've had the privilege of working alongside probably three people who've really helped shape me as a leader. I've looked at what they do, how they've operated and been in awe of them. But also, likewise, I've worked with some people in leadership roles who I've looked at and thought, I will never, ever do what they're doing if I get an opportunity to do what they do. So I think it's a combination of the two. The point you make about you were promoted because you were good at what you did is something that I do still see with people that I work with that you get promoted up in your area of expertise and then suddenly you get to this kind of higher tier and it opens out and you've got to have this umbrella view across the organisation. I'm interested how you managed that transition and what you had to, I suppose, unlearn maybe to step into a broader role. I found it really, really hard. Uh, I must admit, I, I really struggled with that because I clung on to the fact that I felt I needed to know everything about everything Mm. and and be a subject matter expert in everything. One of the key points for me was when I probably learned that actually, two things really. Firstly, that it's about knowing the right questions to ask. You don't need to know everything. What you do need to do is to have fantastic people around you. So it's a bit like a football manager. You don't actually have to play on the pitch, but you have to know what key players are in the key roles and how to get the best out of them. And that, for me, is, is often about asking the right questions. And I think if I'm also being honest with you, I also abide by the 2% rule, which is that you only need to know 2% more than the person you sat opposite to sound credible. (laughs) So in some ways, not having to know 100% about everything, but knowing enough to be credible and to make a valid contribution and to make the right decisions is probably more important. That's probably the hardest transition of my entire career, moving away from that comfort blanket almost of knowing everything about everything. Yeah. You've worked in the housing sector for a number of years from I can see (laughs) what's kept you there? I love it. I love it as a sector. I just think I mean I've doubled in health. So I was a non exec director for CCG and also prior to that PCT and I just found health just far too frustrating. It's a huge beast. I know it's I know it's your background. It's an absolute monster. And I think the ability to make changes at a level, you certainly can do it at a local level, not necessarily a a wider level. I think in housing, it's the fact that you really, it sounds a bit tweeters, but it is genuinely what sort of excites me about it. 
your best life memories happen in your home. So we don't build houses, we don't build units, which is part of some of the terminology that some of our colleagues have. But we deliver homes. The difference that you see, that you make, I mean, we've got quite an ambitious growth program at the moment, so we're building 8,000 new homes. And when I go to some of those schemes and, and hear the stories of the people who are living in those homes and the difference that's made, and you think, wow, that's amazing. That's, you know, on a board report, it's X million investment to deliver X number of homes. It's meaningless. It's when you yeah, sit it's in room, and they've got the kids around them and they said, you know what, we were in a private rented flat. It was one bedroom. I had three kids. They were, you know, they were sleeping the same. And now I'm here in this fantastic house. And you just think, yeah, that's what. And so that's what drives it, really, that ability to feel that you're still making a real difference. And I think I'm really lucky because there are so many people in so many jobs probably outside housing where they probably question if what they do makes a difference you know Mm. I like to think that at the end of my career I can look back and go you know what I've left a bit of a legacy I mean all of us just like basically are key holders aren't we in any role and the job is to I suppose make that organization leave it better than when you found it and then Mm. pass the keys on to somebody else to do the same again that's what keeps me there from being completely honest with you that sort of feeling of real satisfaction and no two days are ever the same I can categorically guarantee you that <laughs> how do you see your role then when it comes to residents specifically I for me it goes back to the point we chatted about, about culture so for me it's, you know for many of our customers I'm not the face of Yorkshire housing the the joiners the plumbers the the people who are going in to speak to and, and support them when they've got financial difficulties, the people who are supporting them to move, they are the face of Yorkshire housing. So for me, it goes back to a point about I'm the custodian of the culture. So, you know, it's for me to walk the talk. It's for me to spend time with some of those frontline teams, working with our customers to understand some of the issues that they face day in, day out. It's the small things, isn't it, that frustrate us all in our day-to-day work. So very often I can just make some very small changes that make a big difference to the ability of those frontline teams to then deliver an even better service for our customers. So I think it's about recognising also that we need to have the right mindset. And we've had a big shift at Yorkshire Housing from uh, recruiting for skills to recruiting for attitude and behaviours. My sort of premise on this is you can train most people to do most things, but you can't change what goes on in their head and what, what drives them in their, in their heart, I suppose, and mm. where, their, where their sort of true emotion comes from. For me, you know, our values and behaviours are probably the most important thing. And uh, we talk about things like you know doing the right thing, not the easy thing, and, uh, and having fun at work. And for me, it's, it's me delivering through others, going back to the, the football manager analogy I, I mentioned before. So how are you? testing those values and behaviours because it can be really easy for people to parrot them back to you how do you know really that they're being honoured for me it's about you're spending time in the business I pride myself on being a very visible leader so I get out and about a lot if I'm being honest with you if you spend time with people after about half an hour they generally tend to drop their guard and you see what really goes on and you get to see some fantastic stuff you know, some really, really top-notch stuff where you go, wow, I didn't realise we're doing that, or wow, I didn't realise we're doing that so well. But you also get to see some things where you go, hmm, I thought we'd sorted that, or I thought we'd fixed that, or actually I didn't realise that was going on, and it enables you to go away and, and I suppose, make some subtle changes in the background to mm. tweak some of that. Open person we don't have, as you, I know your listeners can't see today, but, you know, my normal 
sort of dress code is a t-shirt and a pair of jeans and there's not that hierarchical sort of barriers that very often you have in the workplace of suits and people who include mm. this leader and have got chief exec on a badge on them and whatever we don't have any of that nonsense because actually for me your position in the business is built on what you deliver and whether people actually buy into what you're doing and believe in you and, are, and you're authentic it's not just because you've managed to blag your way through a day-long recruitment process and get you fixed up on your badge. Recruitment processes then, I suppose, is the next place that my head went when we were talking about having the right people around you. And I suppose, yes, when they're in the organisation, you can test for values, behaviours, but how are you, how are you rooting out the, the good from the bad, as it were, when you're in the recruitment process? Because that's probably harder. I have some quite radical views on recruitment, which probably won't always land well with some of your listeners. But my view of it is that basically operational managers aren't necessarily great recruiters. They're predominantly focused on skills. They're looking for people. And I understand that. They're looking for people who can do X or Y or Z really well. So for me, I think you need to have your people team who have the oversight of the recruitment process from start to finish. And they get the, the cultural side of it. They can pretty quickly spot um, how people are. And very often it's the sort of things, you know, so I, I, for example, I interview some people often in coffee shops and wherever else. I'll, I recruit my director of people and culture, sat in Cafe Nero. But I was watching her and how she interacted with somebody when they brought a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. You know, Thank you. Did she, did she make eye contact? All those sorts of very subtle indicators. And I think the other thing, Lee, which probably, probably comes with as you get a bit older and a bit more experienced is sometimes you get a gut feel about sometimes positively so sometimes you know people can be really nervous and they don't come across particular well but something about them you think there's something there there's something worth exploring further but also sometimes people can be really have the gift of the gap they can tell you and they can rattle off all your values and behaviors they can rattle off your strategic plan but you're looking at them and you're thinking there's something about you that isn't right there's something about you that won't fit or doesn't quite fit and I think, for me, if you get that itch, you need to scratch it. You need to go further. You need to have another stage to the process. You need to find another way of trying to find out why you're feeling that way. And I think sometimes that gut feel is is underrated. I know there are lots of risks to that, in terms of particularly in terms of ensuring that we have a diverse and inclusive workforce. I, I absolutely accept that. But I think that's why it goes back to having your people and culture team as the custodians of that recruitment process. And we also have specialist recruiters in that team as well. So mm-hmm. they have the final say on who we recruit and who we appoint. And also, finally, I'd say recruitment is an art, not a science, and it's about recognising sometimes you get it wrong. Yeah. And I suppose it's recognising that early and dealing with it early. And I know that sounds pretty hard line, but if people aren't happy, they're not going to be delivering a great service and a great job. And likewise, as a business, you know, we're not getting value for money out of them. So you need to have those, con- those really honest conversations really early. So looking specifically at your C-suite, your exec team, whatever it is that you call it in your organisation, what are you looking for when you're building that team? I suppose diversity of thought. There's a real temptation to recruit in your own form, heaven forbid, in my case. <laughs> What I really like are the exec team need to be enablers. So first of all, I'd say that. So the last thing you need is there's a stereotype, isn't there? There's a lazy stereotype that, for example, an FD 
their response is the answer is no. What was your question going to be? Type thing. <laughs> and I think, you know, certainly in my case, my exec director for finance and governance couldn't be further from the truth. He's a real enabler. But what he does do is he, he understands what it is we're trying to achieve as a business and then lays out a series of choices and the risks that's inside each of those. And I think that's what a good exec team do. There's that diversity of thought. I know that I certainly haven't got all the answers. You know, I, I rely on. Uh, lots and lots of really good contributions from a cross section of really good people, and then putting pulling all that together in terms of a a really clear way forward. But to do that, you've got to have a culture where people feel that they can contribute quite openly and honestly. So yeah, I would like to think that if you sat in one of our exacting meetings, you would not know the chief executives. That's a nice test, isn't it? A challenge for me. <laughs> <laughs> More broadly, then, we're looking at how one of the things I'm interested in is how CEOs build and develop the right infrastructure around them. And I don't necessarily just mean the people. It can be ways of working and all of that stuff as well. So what's been your approach? My sort of starting point of all of this is that most employers treat their employees like children and then get really grumpy when they act like children. So what I mean by that is that most employers tell people when they should have the lunch, tell people when they should start work, tell people when they should stop work, tell people where they work and how they work. And I, it just amazes me because I just sort of peel all this back and just go, my first question is, are you over 18? Yes, you're a grown-up adult. Are you clear on what your objectives are in this role? Yes, okay. In which case, these are the clear objectives that we agree you're going to deliver. How, when, where you deliver them, I'm not really bothered. I don't really give two hoops. As long as you deliver, fine by me. And that's because people work at their optimum at different times. So I'm a morning person. I start at 5 a.m. out of choice. I do my best work really early on. I recognize that. So if I've got some complicated board reports to write or if I need to do some thinking around an opportunity or an issue we've got, I'll whiteboard that out and mind map it early doors. But there are some of my colleagues who literally don't start functioning until about five o'clock in the afternoon. For me, it's around why do I then invite them to an 8 a.m. meeting? Mm-hmm. I'm going to get the best out of them. They're just going to be, you know, absolutely useless. It's that whole thing about treating people like grown-up adults. So we, all of our colleagues are home-based. We don't tell them when they need to come into our workspace. Our workspace is designed around collaboration anyway. So it's not where you just come to bang a keyboard for seven hours a day because somebody doesn't trust you that you're actually working. And actually, for me, that is a big element of retention. I think if you start to talk to, as I do, spend time with with recruiters, they will tell you that for an increasing proportion of the workforce now, flexibility job flexibility is as important as salary. I still wonder why organisations insist and indeed in some cases specify the days that people should go into an office. It's just crazy. And do they tell them the hours that they need to eat their lunch at a weekend when they're not in work? Because otherwise, presumably, they wouldn't eat, would they? And I think certainly post-pandemic and certainly with the generation that's coming into the workforce now as well, who are fantastic, really dynamic, but really clear that they want that flexibility, but also they want to believe in the organisation. So as a housing association, we provide affordable, high-quality homes for people on lower incomes. We're doing some real social good. So that yeah, we've got a good story to sell to people who are wanting to work for an ethical employer. I think for all of those reasons, as well as, most importantly, 
I get the best out of people. And I not only get to recruit the very best people, but probably more importantly, I get to retain very good people. I was going to ask you a question around this post-pandemic intergenerational kind of multi-generational workforce and also the focus on equity and inclusion are all having such a big impact on the workforce and so it sounds like you're pretty progressive in thinking through some of those things how's your specific leadership style had to adapt to respond to that I think it's probably more multi-channel I'll do series of videos for colleagues I do a live ask Nick every month where any one of our 800 colleagues can jump on a video call and ask me absolutely anything they want. And I've had the most diverse range of questions ever. I think the strangest one I've had was my view on a case that we were dealing with where, sorry, I shouldn't laugh, where we had reports of a ghost in a property. What my thoughts were on the uh, supernatural spiritual world, and it was like, I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) I think my style has had to be much more open, even more approachable than even I prided myself on being. And I suppose just going back to that whole point about being authentic, just being dead honest with people, you know, tell people the truth. Don't dress it up for me. Don't need to dress it up. Mm. Just say to them, look, this is the position. This is where we're at. This is what we're going to do about it. And this is what I need. This is why I need your help to sort of get us to that place. Most rational, reasonable people will go, you know what? Yeah, all right, I'm up for that. That's fine. Things like, for example, when we deal with pay, I'm just really clear with people. I'm sort of saying, look, this is what we can afford. There's a cost of living crisis. I am targeting more money towards those people on the lower end pay scales because I believe that's the right and fair thing to do at this time. I appreciate that for some people, that means you're not going to get the pay increase that probably you were hoping for. But I hope you feel that the process is, is fair and equitable in terms of helping those people who really need it at the moment. So it's things like that about just being really open and, and direct mm. with people. It helps being from Yorkshire because Yorkshire folk are straight talking. Yeah. We really are. Our recruitment process does fail occasionally. We do get the odd Lancastrian who manages to sneak into our organisation. <laughs> we soon manage to re-educate them into the ways of being more Yorkshire. Well, I, I've got Yorkshire on my heart. I went to university in Leeds. So, oh, um, great. Uh, well, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely welcome you for a cup of Yorkshire tea then at some point. <laughs> I want to, to go back a little bit on that point around, you know, you you recognise that you work best in the morning. You don't want to treat other people like children and, and you want to get the best out of them. But I suppose at the end of the day, you've also got a business to run and to run effectively and efficiently. And I know some of the challenges that I hear from other leaders is that sense of, well, we need to get so much stuff done. And if I don't put some rules and red lines down we won't so how do you balance that with I'm, I'm assuming you're not giving everyone a free reign either no absolutely so my take on all of this is just being really clear on a few and I mean a few clear objectives that people need to deliver the easiest way I always think to do this is just because the world's changing because you know everything's changing around us so rapidly at the moment to have annual targets and it's just nonsense mm. uh, I work on quarters. So, for example, the conversation I've been having with my team, what are your key achievables between now and Christmas? Nice, natural break, really, for most organisations. And what do you need from me or the business to help you deliver those? And that's what I focus on. And if people deliver those, then that, for me, is surely the most important thing. I think it goes back to that whole paternalistic approach that organisations still have about the fact that, I need to see people in in the office to know that they're working or 
And we need people in because otherwise younger members of the team won't learn from some, well, you know what? Some of the younger members of the team sometimes shouldn't be learning from some of the more senior members of the team. Some of the senior members of the team probably aren't doing things the way that they should now be doing. So I think they're quite lazy assumptions that people make to justify why people should be in a workspace. I absolutely support the notion of people coming together. Collaboration, most single biggest driving force for change and innovation in a business. But you don't engineer that. You know, I didn't ha- I've not had my best ideas sat in a glass box, working through an agenda at a set time on a set day because somebody told me I needed to be creative that day. Mm. And for me, it's, it goes always goes back to how do I get the best out of 800 colleagues? And for some of those colleagues, yeah, there is there is more structure. So, for example, if you're doing repairs in customers' homes, our repairs, our customers generally want those repairs doing between eight and seven in the day. So, yeah, of course, we need them working between that time. But again, we can offer that flexibility. And also just on some other roles. So we have quite a lot of green areas in other places where we have our homes. And we have an environmental services team who maintain those areas to fab standard. Previously, we worked on a basis of pigs and troughs. So as we know, grass grows much quicker in the summer than, than mm-hmm. in the winter. So we had to have more people to do that work. And we used to have seasonal workers. And we used to lay people off. And it was one of those, well, why aren't they on annualized hours? Because actually, we don't need them to be doing 35 hours a week at the highest summer. We need them to be in 45 hours plus to maintain those areas. But actually, that would then free them up during the months when we don't need them to. Instead of laying them off, actually, we can keep them on the books mm-hmm. and keep really talented people. But actually, we don't need them to be doing as much. And every job, I guarantee you, every job has peaks and troughs. So why do we have a 35 or a 37 hour week? Yeah. It's a nonsense. And that was brought in, interestingly, by Henry Ford. The 95 was introduced by Henry Ford in 1926 to produce the Ford Model T more cost-effectively. We're a housing association. We don't produce Ford Model Ts. We don't need to be working 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. The quarterly focus. So the biggest difference I've found when I left the health service and started my own business was the fact that I could be completely flexible. So I also work in that quarterly focus short bursts and it's made me reflect this idea of we used to moan in the health service about being a massive like a cruise ship you know you wanted to make any change you were moving so slowly but actually you have a shorter focus you could be more of a speedboat and agile and responsive to stuff that's going on have you had to do work with your board for example to get them on board with that more short-term thinking rather than the security blanket of thinking we've got to have a year's plan, a five-year plan, whatever it might be? Yeah, I I suppose I'm really fortunate. So I've got um, an exceptional board, but that's not by chance. You do have to go out and be really clear what it is you mm-hmm. want. So our board are, are great. And I think there's, there's a couple of key ingredients for a really good board. I think, first of all, you have to invest the time. And in, again, they're individuals, getting to know the individuals, what makes them tick, um, what their level of understanding is so that you can bespoke how you you deliver information to them so they can help make the right decisions i think secondly you need to develop a shared vision and be really clear on the direction of travel with them using your cruise ship analogy it's a bit like they have the overall destination they help set the overall destination with the exec team but the exec team are basically navigating a yacht and a Mm. It's a yacht, it has to tack with the wind. So sometimes it doesn't appear you're going towards the direction of overall travel, but actually you're working within a set 
sort of boundary, if that makes sense. Thirdly, I think there needs to be a really strong relationship between a chief executive chair. And again, I'm really fortunate to have that. My chair, she's exceptional. She's a hard taskmaster, but she asks, interestingly, going back to one of our earlier points, all she does is ask really good questions that make you think and make you reflect and draw out the answers sometimes that are already sort of buried away in, inside your head. And then finally, I think the, the other element of a good board is that there has to be high levels of trust and openness. They have to be a sounding board, a confidential sounding board. You need to be able to go to them and say, this has happened. This is the reason it's happened. This is what we're doing about it. Does that sort of, from your vast experience as 10 individuals with fantastic careers, does that seem to make sense or is there anything else we're missing? And very often, I think the value of a board is the things they stop you from doing that would have been the wrong thing. Moving just on a little bit, you host your own podcast. You regularly write for trade magazines. You're very, very active on social media. That's when I was looking for people to interview. That's one of the reasons your name kind of came up to me from others. So it's clear that you see the importance of communications and you understand it's part of your role. You've already mentioned the fact that you've had to develop more of a multi-channel approach to respond to the changing workforce. Has that always been like that for you? Has communications been essential to your leadership approach? No. And I think it's, again, it's one of the things I'll probably go back and change about my younger self. Mm. I used to think that if you wrote a really good report or a really good press release or a really good internal sort of statement or email that um, had a good rational business case and made sense that that would do the job and you'd go, well, why hasn't that delivered? Why haven't people listened? Why haven't people read it? Also, it's quite scary because you sort of worry about what is I'm saying? Uh, am I saying the right thing? Will I know the answer? Will I come across the right way? And in some cases, you just got to get over yourself. Go, you know what? I'm going to get something wrong. I do have a bit of a propensity because I get super excited to swear a little bit. So, you know, I do generally give a warning beforehand and sort of <laughs> enthusiasm and, and because, you know, I love what I do. And so I suppose it came to me really in terms of when I started to see how messages land by others. And again, it's about watching others around you who you admire and go, mm. ah, right, okay, that's really clever. They've done that actually. Oh, mm. That's what I need to do. And and I suppose it's also about getting really good comms people around you. So interestingly, the call I had before I joined you today was with our head of comms and brand. So I catch up with her on a three-weekly basis and we just talk about some of the key things that the business is doing and then making sure that she's hooked into that and supporting the delivery of that. And we've expanded her team. Her team is quite large. I think we've got nine or 10 people in our comms and brand team because you know it is significantly important. And so I suppose it's right at the heart for me now. Mm. Wasn't I used to think that, as I say, if I wrote something that was very cleverly worded and made absolute sense, that people would read it and that would do the job. Couldn't be further from the truth. I think particularly given where the world's at now, and interestingly you were saying about why you kind of invited me onto your podcast, it's about your, your online presence and your online mm. visibility as well. And people take a lot from that. Probably believe that more than than what they hear and, and read in the news, which in some cases may, may be a good thing, in other cases may not be a good thing. But I think for me, it's right at the heart. So that's why I have a direct relationship with my head of comms and brand and her team. So they are integral to helping me get some of those messages delivered. And how have you, I suppose, developed your voice? Because I think that's something that people can be really nervous about. 
I try not to listen back. <laughs> everybody hates it. Everybody hates how they look and hates the sound of their own voice. And yeah, I used to be, and I hope I'm not come across. Maybe, maybe you tell me. I, I, I try not to be monotone. I just try to sort of, I suppose, talking with a bit of a smile on your face, that helps, you know. I'm also prouder of my heritage. I'm prouder of my background. I'm Yorkshire and, and I just use the words that I think are right. I don't try and be smart and overcomplicate things. For me, it's just about probably being more more comfortable in your own skin, and that's hard. I genuinely can't believe I've blagged my way into this role. Like when I get invited some people like yourself to come on a podcast, like my Instagram reaction is, "Why do they want me?" You know, people much better than they chatting to. (laughs) It's that whole thing of just thinking, okay, right, put that to one side and just share your journey to try and help somebody who maybe is starting to grapple with some of this and on their own career journey. Because I've been really, really really okay i've been really blessed to work alongside three people who really helped shape me as a person as in my mm. career and also i've had several people who've put their faith in me to give me opportunities very often at times when i wasn't quite ready for them but they've helped me and made sure that i, I succeeded in the majority of cases with those and where i didn't succeed that they encouraged me to take the learning and i think yeah, very often you take your best learning from when things perhaps don't go as well as you'd hope. So I noticed in your bio that you've been regularly listed as one of the most influential people in the housing sector. And I'm assuming your proactive, consistent, open comms style is, is probably one of the reasons. Is influence something that you've consistently worked on or consciously worked on? I suppose more so over the last sort of eight to ten years. So I think as I increasingly got to a position where we used to sort of respond to lots of consultations on X or Y. And and actually, I soon realised that actually many of those consultations are a done deal. They're just looking for verification of what has already been decided. So for me, it was about how do you then help shape those decisions and those policies before they come out as a consultation? And that, I think, is now why I put in my role to help influence and shape things at the forefront of what I'm trying to achieve. So across Yorkshire, we've God's own country has, has three devolved regions, and we are active in all three of those because we've got two mayors at the moment. Another mayor is going to be elected into York and North Yorkshire next May. So it enables us to have those conversations and to help some of those key decision makers act as a sounding board and to help shape policies rather than waiting for them to be developed and then trying to change them when it's probably a bit too late in the day. You've talked quite a lot in our conversation today. Um, I've got this sense of, I suppose, the energy you have around transforming, making change happen for the better. What's the secret of handling that well? I think that we all tend to get sucked into looking at things in through the lens of the world that we're working in. So what I mean by that is that my approach to transformation is to not look at things as in, in terms of what's happening in the housing sector. So I try to take my learning and my inspiration from looking out. So I sort of think about For example, what happens in my personal life? How do I interact with service providers? What do I like? What do I dislike? What do I expect? And then I play that back and think, well, actually, why aren't we doing that? Why is it an online offering? Why aren't we operating 24-7? Why haven't we got live chat? 
all those sorts of things. Mm. Then it goes further than that. It goes further, which is that our big thing at Yorkshire Housing is to transform the whole premise of the housing service offer. So at the moment, the whole service offer in housing is reactive. We wait for things to happen. We then wait for our customers to tell us that those things have happened, not just repairs, things like people struggling to pay their rent, people want to move home or answer behavior or a whole raft of things that we deal with. But then we respond to them telling us that in a really unplanned, uncoordinated way. It's really expensive for us as a business, but more importantly for the customer, it's really inconvenient. And we hack them off in many cases because Mm -hmm. they're coming to us at a point of service failure. For me, we're looking to transform that to our big business strategy priorities, moving the service from being reactive to being preemptive. And to do that, I'll be very quick, but three key ingredients. The first is that to transform our homes. So at the moment, uh, the average car, I think, has about 3,000 sensors in it at the moment. The average home has 10. It's about actually making our, turning our dumb homes into smart homes. So the second thing, and all of that tech is, is available, it's cheap as chips and it's there and ready to go. The second thing is we've got data to die for, but we generally don't do a lot with it. So it's about using data analytics and predictive modeling. And the third element is, interestingly, around customer sentiment, real-time customer sentiment analysis, not satisfaction surveys, but scraping in real time what's happening on social media, what our customers are talking about, so that we can pick up issues in live time and deal with those, as well as plugging in open source data from other agencies as well, like local authorities, police, etc., that's the premise. That we, So our customers moving forward will not need to contact us. We will deal with things before they've actually happened. So we will contact them to arrange to come and do something or speak to them about something. And it hasn't actually yet broken or that event actually hasn't yet fully happened. So it's about dealing with stuff more upstream. And all of that is taking learning from a whole range of different sectors. You know, you look at, for example, how retail has been transformed. You look at how banking has been transformed. You look at how you buy a car and, and all those sorts of things. And it's then say, taking your own life experience and applying it in the world of work that you're in. You've triggered, I suppose, a side thought, which is social housing in particular. There are lots of other factors at play, not just the, the infrastructure of a home. So the impact of cost of living, for example, on residents. Yeah. How much is that type of thing influencing your strategy and how, I suppose, proactive or active can you be in those things that might be possibly seen as outside of your control? They are outside our control, but we can do a lot to support our customers to basically to find their way through some of those challenges. So some of the big key things that that our teams are dealing with. So we put more resource, first of all, in terms of tenancy support and also our money coaching service. And the people that are dealing with this are fantastic. There are two main issues. The first is around the cost of living crisis disproportionately affects people who live in our homes. We are providing lots of support, as I say, through, uh, yes, advice and support services, but also in some cases, we are looking at ways that we can reduce residents' fuel bills. So in the rural areas that we work in, we are looking to remove, for example, oil-fired heating systems, replacing with air source heat pumps. It also works well for our overall drive to be a low-carbon business. If you take a tenancy with us and you've got an oil-fired heating system because it's off-grid in a rural area, your first bill is £800 to fill the oil tank in your garden. And they don't come and just put five gallons in. It's either £800 or nothing. And so we've got a scheme that enables people to be able to meet that upfront cost and, and deal with that. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is we're dealing with, as many agencies are, we're not on our own. 
but a real sharp increase in the number of people who are struggling with what I would class as low-level mental health challenges. And again, we've got a team who really help and support that. And it's not just our residents either. Those services are also available for our colleagues as well. Great, thank you. We're nearing the end of our time, but I do have a couple of short questions, if you don't mind. When I first emailed you, I got an out-of-office from you explaining that you only check your emails at certain points and there was a list of all the other ways that I could get in touch. And that said to me that there is a clear message of, A, your accessibility, but you also managed my expectations. And I suppose it told me that you're really quite clear on some of the boundaries that you set in the way that you work. How else do you set and manage boundaries and expectations? I think the key one is how you blend home and work. I have a home deal. So Catherine, who's my long-suffering wife, every year I send her a wedding anniversary card and it just says thanks for putting up with me for another year. (laughs) But I think having that clear deal at home. So the deal at home is I'll work whatever's needed, Monday to Friday. We're really clear about when I'm around, when I'm not, when I'll be back and whatever. And we work through that in a really structured way. It was probably more important when... Uh, we've got three children when they were at home. Fortunately, they all left, although one of them keeps coming back, which um, is a bit of a frustration, but I'm sure at some point he'll decide to leave permanently. <laughs> we've got my job, beautiful Labrador dog, so she needs also looking after. So we need to we need to manage that. But it's that home deal. It's that clear boundaries around what you will do and also when you'll be present at home. And I've got mm. a big thing about being present. So when I'm with my family, I put the devices down and I'm present with my family. It's their time. The other thing that helps me really manage is exercise. I'm not very good at it, but I am a keen runner. So I try to do six or seven and a half marathons a year, and I try to run between 20 and 30 miles a week. That really, really helps because very often, like many people, I have quite a sedentary role otherwise. Mm-hmm. And it also, I find, really energizes me and gets those sort of all, all those natural things that go on in your head and in your body. It kickstarts all those and really helps me for the day. I've not really talked about work boundaries. I don't, you know, necessarily they're as important as some of the things that really matter, which is your life, much mm. to yourself, and and having a, a sort of stable family and a very supportive family environment. Yeah, I can't say I admire the running because that'd be lying, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I admire the commitment and motivation to run. Yeah. I'll put it that way. <laughs> if you saw me run, you wouldn't admire anything. <laughs> <laughs> My final question is, what's the one piece of advice that you would give to other people in a senior leadership, maybe a budding CEO, future CEO role? I'd say a couple of things. The only thing holding you back is you. Don't listen to the self-doubt in your head. Apply the 2% rule. It's worked for me. Grasp the opportunities that come your way. There are always opportunities. And what I mean by that is understand what's keeping senior leaders awake at night and make yourself part of the solution. Proactively offer up support and opportunities to help solve that. And really as part of that, don't wait to be asked. Get stuck in and make yourself indispensable. It's very easy, I think, to make yourself visible in organisations to senior leaders and to actually get clocked as potential leaders for the future. And if all else fails, do what I did and just like it. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. If people want to get in touch via the socials and uh, you know, share their thoughts and reflections on our discussion, what's the best way to follow you? I'm on Twitter stroke X, whatever you want to call it, um, at Nick Atkin underscore YH. 
My contact details are also on our website, which is yorkshirehousing.co.uk, also on LinkedIn. So reach out whichever way you prefer. Emails my least preferred. You probably will get a bit of a patchy response if you email me because emails scourge of my life. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please let me know on Apple Podcasts or on App of Choice and drop me a line over on LinkedIn. You can find me at Nee Griffith. I'll be back with the next episode in two weeks' time. So in the meantime, remember to sign up to my newsletter at sundayskies.com for further insights on how to lead with impact. Until next time, 